So welcome. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father and our God, we pray now that you would um, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know you. Certainly as the apostle has prayed to know the hope to which we've been called and the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours. But particularly now that you would enable us to know the power that is towards all who believe. So please, I pray now, let us see and understand and value love. All that you have for us this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 1 again. This will be, I think, our last one on Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read verses 15 through 23. Ephesians in chapter 1, please. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know uh, what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, I want, if God will help me, to pick up um, really from the middle of verse, so let me, be, let me reread verse 20 through the end. That he worked in Christ, that is his great power, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, This very last piece here of first his praise and then his prayer speaks of Christ and also of the church. So it speaks of Christ and also the church. The clear message here is that Christ is ruling and reigning and even that Christ is ruling and reigning through the church, in the church, through the church and ultimately in the whole world. Christ is ruling and reigning. Now, when we talk about the rule and reign of Christ, the present rule and reign of Christ, one almost always begins to think, 
Can that really be true? Is Jesus really ruling and reigning right now? And the reason that we ask that question is because of what we see. Right? Because of what we what we see. Is he really ruling and reigning? We, we think about in the political scene, not only in our own country, but throughout the world. Is Christ really ruled? Does this reflect him at all, this the rule and reign of Christ? In our country at the moment, of course, we can't get out of our minds um, the violence in our country, the shooting of our children. We just can't get that out of our, our minds. Um, uh, we seek solutions. We wonder how can we really stop this hate. We, we see poverty and we see injustice. We, sex, we see sexual abuse, uh, sexual immorality, sexual confusion. Uh, we uh, see uh, uh, our unborn uh, being uncared for at the very least. And so we wonder, is he ruling and reigning? Um, not to mention, of course, wars that happen. Not to mention the natural disasters that we see in terms of hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and all of that. And the daily trouble of people just throughout the world looking for food and, and shelter. And, and, and we see the difficulties we have in relationships, even in uh, Christian relationships of husbands and wives and friendships and just the difficulties that take place. We see the, pair, the pain and the sadness of disease, whether it's mental disease or physical disease. We, we see the, the pain and the struggle of aging amongst us and all the difficulties that that, that brings in the context of of life, we see the struggle of loneliness and the struggle to be content and the struggle to live a satisfying life. And we see even that in the midst of us, in the midst of a, a, a culture that's as wealthy and as healthy as a culture has ever been. And yet still the struggle to have a satisfying, a contented uh, life. And, and yet did I even mention death? So we ask that question, uh, is Christ really uh, ruling? And raining. I'm sorry to begin with such a dour note, but 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 uh, we'll get better in a minute. But but this whole idea of Christ ruling and reigning—that's uh, a question that's before us in the context of of life. Is He ruling and reigning in a world that looks like ours? Um, we know, of course, that creation that God created Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. Uh, in fact, there's a wonderful psalm that that describes that in Psalm. Number eight, uh, there's a psalm of this dominion, rule of human beings over, over the earth. Uh, psalm eight begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength uh, because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, uh, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then we go, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. But it isn't at the moment because of our sin. 
But when the author of Hebrews picks this up and applies it to Jesus. In Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 5, we see this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. We know where. He knew where probably too. Uh, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower. Uh, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. No, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's saying, oh, I see now something. That Christ, the ideal Adam, the second Adam, Christ has come to undo all of that. And now everything is under his feet. He's been crowned with glory and honor. But we don't yet see it all in its fullness. The day will come when he, we will see it, but we've yet to see it. But we know that he's been crowned, ruling and reigning. So in one sense, we're not expected to see it in its fullness because it's not yet here in its fullness. So we've been warned, we've been told what it will look like. Well, Christ is exalted and all things put under his feet. He's been crowned. He's ruling and reigning. And we don't yet see it. In all of its fullness. But the promise is that we will. So let's take a look and see what uh, Paul is writing to us about Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And now, of course, he's, he's been exalted. Notice how, notice how he puts it here in uh, verse 20. That Christ is seated. Well, that's a royal enthronement. He's seated on a throne. So that's how we must understand Jesus. Now this risen and exalted Christ. He's seated on the throne. Uh, which means he has this great place of honor. Jesus has this great place of honor. Uh, others stand when they serve. He sits. Why? Because his work in that sense is finished. Notice in Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. This is in the old covenant. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus is sitting. His work is done in that sense. He's paid for the sins of sinners. So that all who trust in him would be forgiven, redeemed, saved, if you will. And so there he is. And, and, and he sits at the Father's right hand. Uh, he sits there because his work is completed. And at his right hand, this hand in power, he rules and reigns. So what we have in Psalm 110 is this. This is the psalm that Paul is referring to. 
He says, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, the first Lord is the Lord capitalized, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so there he is. He's been exalted to the right hand. He rules and reigns. It's a place of honor. He's ruling now as we see it over his enemies. He's ruling in the heavenly places. Right? Uh, which is a good thing because it's from those heavenly places that all our blessings come. And we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So if he's ruling and reigning in the heavenly places, then we know that these blessings that he's promised us in chapter 1 told us about, uh, that we'd be holy and blameless in his sight, that we'd be adopted as his children, that we would be redeemed by his blood, that we'd be forgiven our sins, that we'd be gathered together and united together in Christ, we'd be sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of that comes from the heavenly places, and so so good for us that Christ rules and reigns there in the heavenly uh, places. And notice then this, it says, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, the point is he has absolutely no rivals at all. I mean, all these words are piled upon to, to say he's got every power and every rule and every authority that could ever be had. There isn't anyone who has any more rule or authority or dominion or power than Jesus. So, so he has no rivals. In fact, every power is inferior to him. And he has authority over even all those powers. Which means they can't do anything. Unless he ordains it. He is over all. And for all time, both in this age and in the age to come. In other words, he has no rivals anywhere, at any time, or in any place. He's ruling over all things, even now. And you go, well, I haven't seen it. Well, you won't see it in its fullness. But he is. This is just simply the truth about, about Jesus. Um, and we get that. As Paul will even put it in Ephesians in chapter 6, as he puts certain rulers and authorities, not just human rulers and authorities, but even spiritual ones. Verse 12 of chapter 6, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We go, that seems scary. <laughs> And it is scary, unless there is one who's far above those, and unless the one who's far above those is for us. That's true, not so scary. He's ruling and reigning all the time. Matthew 28, as we know, tells us that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has it all. All authority. He's been exalted. And he's above every name. You know, the great passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The apostle writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself uh, by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in him and found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's Jesus, the exalted Jesus. He's far above all rule and authority, all above every name that could ever be named. And then it says, and he that is God put all things under his feet, all things under the feet of Jesus. Now, that expression is a feat of victory over enemies. There's a wonderful Old Testament story, Joshua chapter 10. Um, read it to your kids. They'll love it. Uh, it's one of those action stories where, where the Israelites, by way of Joshua's command, uh, defeats the Midianites. And there are uh, five Midianite kings who are hiding in a cave. And so Joshua says, go get them. And so they go get the five Midianite kings who are hiding in the cave. And he says to his leaders, put your feet on their necks. Why? Because that's a sign they've been defeated. He's put them under his. And so that's, that's the image here of, of Jesus, that, that God has put everything under his feet. We, we don't see it all right now, but we will. In fact, if you want a very, very... Um, Short history of the world, as they say, uh, in in First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty. Here's the short history, redemptive history, verse twenty. But in fact, Christ has been raised. So this takes us from the resurrection to the end. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's the first Adam, the second Adam. Well, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign. So you get the quick story from the resurrection to the second coming. And then he's saying, uh, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's now. So you get the picture. Getting all these enemies who are in the caves, pulling them out, putting them under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is to say, he's given him victory over all. Now he's just mopping up, mopping up. He says, but, when he, but it all says, all things are put in subjection. It is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjected under him, that God. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjected under him, that God may be all in all. Short history. Jesus rises. He ascends. He rules and reigns. He rules and reigns all things, putting all his enemies under his feet. And then a day will come when he returns. And then he'll banish, if you will, all evil and all sin and all death. And he'll rule and reign Jesus, even if you will, under the rule of his father. Life is good. That's the way 
it's always meant to be. So you see it. So, so what Paul ends this prayer, he says, he says no, you, you got to see this. You really have to see this. That Jesus really is, as he's, as he's shown in, in the Revelation, in that great hallelujah course, he's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. Now, when you think of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you have to spell it out in your head. You've got to see the words. Because you have to see that the first king has a capital K, but the second king doesn't. So he's the capital K king of small k kings. And he's the capital Lord, Lord of all the small L lords. All right. So you'll never be able to sit through the Messiah again without spelling it out in your head. Uh, if you go to a really good one, they'll have all the words printed for you anyway. So you should be able to see that. All right. That's who he is. He's the king of kings. There isn't any king who would pronounce himself herself to be king uh, with uh, that he isn't king over. There's any Lord who might claim to be a Lord who, who Jesus isn't Lord over. So that's already done. That's already decided. The move is on. It's happening even now, whether we see it or not. But it really is happening uh, even even now. But then picture this. Verse uh, 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You see, Jesus is head over all things. That's what this means. He's head. He's king. He has authority. He has dominion. He has power over all things. He's the head over all things. And then as a gift to the church, the Father gave Christ. So the one who's the head of all things is the one who's the head of the church. And he's the head of all things for the benefit and for the sake of the church. So if Christ is for us, who can really be against us? Now I know how it feels. (laughs) Trust me, I know how it feels. But if Christ is for us, who really can be against us. When we think about even the temptations that we face, even those besetting sins that seem to plague us, we have to always remind ourselves that Christ rules and reigns. He really does. And his power is towards us. He's been given as the head over all things, even over all these temptations, over all these things. He's been given to us as the church And he rules and reigns so we can trust him, depend upon him, still live in constant dependence, seeking him out for help over all of these matters. When we look at the world in which we live, we need to know that he's ruling and reigning in such a way his very presence exists. He fills all things in every way. He's there filling, ruling and reigning over all of these things. And even though we don't see it, we need to realize that he's bringing everything in subjection under his feet so that when the time is full, he'll come and we'll see it. I mean, that's living by faith, isn't it? It's, it's, it's living, it's really living by, by faith. Because you see, we're his body. Notice, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. We're his body, we, we, we know that. 
We know the body of Christ metaphor that Paul uses in, in other places. We, we, we see it so vividly, and Paul would know this himself, because in Paul's conversion, there's this funny little expression, if I could put it that way, that Jesus uses. When, when, he, when he arrests Saul on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if I were Saul, I would say, I can't even see you. <laughs> I, I'm not touching you. I'm not doing anything to you. But yet we know, as, as, as the Old Testament poets would put it, that God's people are the apple of his eye. As it's the, Google that expression. Uh, he's the, we're the apple of his eye, you see. And you know, the apple of your eye is the most tender part of your eye. Being a Florida person, uh, long walks on the beach are common when I can get them, when I'm traveling there now. And yet, if the wind blows and I'm on the part of the beach where it's not wet and the sand isn't sort of packed, the piece of sand can get in my eye. And you know, when a little tiny little speck of sand gets in my eye, everything stops. I mean, I just can't walk. My eye starts to water. My hand goes, I've got to do something about this. My nose starts to run in sympathy with my eye. I mean, everything just, everything just sort of stops at that moment in time. Why? Because one little speck, one little small speck of sand, you see, has gotten in my eye. And, and, and it stops everything. And, and that's the image of us being the apple of God's eye. That, that when, when even the smallest thing hits us, God knows it. Jesus knows it, you see. And, and he's irritated by what irritates us. And we have to think, well, why do you let this irritation go on so long? <laughs> and he says, because I know it's the best. Trust me, I'm sovereign over every speck of sand. And so, every speck of sand will sovereignly work out for your good. Because I'm ruling and reigning over every speck of sand, you see. And we know that. And that's why this being his body, you see, the great joy of that is, is that there's a, the connection between the two of us, like a head to a body. There's this union between the two. The Bible uses all kinds of metaphors about our relationship and with, 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 with God through Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, we'll see that we're the household of God, we're the temple of God, we're the dwelling place of God. In chapter 5, he'll, he'll use this metaphor of marriage, of being in union as husband and wife are, are one, so we're together with Christ. And it's fascinating how Paul puts it about marriage in, in Ephesians in chapter 5, about relationship with one's body. Um, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is talking about Christ as being the head of his church. And so he says, listen, this is what I, I'm doing. And so he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, Christ, if we could put it this way, loves us as he loves his own body, you see, because we are his body. And so he he loves us as as though we're part of him, because we really are. We're joined together with him. So he loves us. It's like he loves himself. 
So in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. So he, he, he cherishes us. And he nourishes us, you see. Because we're his body. And think about the fact that the one who cherishes us and nourishes us is sovereign over all things. That everything is under his feet. That he rules and reigns over all things. I mean, I love my wife. And I really desire to cherish and nourish her. But I have pretty extreme limits. Bless her heart. (laughs) Sorry for her. You know, uh, uh, I just have these great limits. Now, for us as the body of Christ, you see, we don't, he, Christ has no limits. He rules and reigns over all things. And so we say, well, why then is the difficulties happening in my life? And, and, and we have to go back and say, well, remember, he rules and reigns over all things. Therefore, the speck of sand till it goes is ultimately for our good could stop it but here it is trust him he's he's ruling and reigning and then notice what it says and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him i mean it's remarkable now i don't have time to to do the grammar. I, I, I know I spent too much time on some grammar a couple of weeks ago. But, but this word fullness could either be active or passive. It's just difficult to translate, I've been told. Uh, and so it could be that the expression means that the church actually fills Christ. And I only say this, I'm only using this one because you're smart and can follow this. And secondly, because some really influential people like John Calvin holds this view. So I always like to at least, you know, cite him and others who hold this view. There are many others who hold this view. And and the sense isn't that Christ is incomplete in any way, shape, or form, or that he's not self-sufficient. But the fact that as Redeemer, he needs the redeemed. In the same way that a shepherd needs sheep. In, in, In the same way that a vine needs branches. The branches complete the vine. The sheep complete the shepherd. The redeemed complete the redeemer, you see. The, the, the bride completes the bridegroom. And if you think about that, you go, oh my. That's who we are as the church. You know, sometimes I, I think as I read uh, anything almost that isn't Christian, I think that, and this, I think we're seeing this increasingly, that we're being increasingly despised. By the world. I mean, bless Billy Graham's heart. All the negative articles that are now being produced about him. And I think they really don't like us. He made some mistakes. But you think. But then I realized, no, 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 no. This is who we really are as the church. We're the redeemed to the redeemer. We're the sheep to the shepherd. We're the branches to the vine. We're the bride to the groom. Yes. But, but more probably natural to understand this, and probably the best way, is to realize that Christ fills us. That we're being filled by him. 
We're the fullness of Christ. And when you think about that, we'll get into this more as we, as we make our way through Ephesians. But, but notice we have this in, in, in chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, he who descended, that is Jesus who came down, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To think that what's happening in us simply in me or in you, but in us together, is that Christ is filling us up with himself, with who he is, with his character, with his love and with his kindness and compassion and forgiveness and power. He's filling us up with that all the time. To such a degree, really, That if we could see us as the Lord sees us, that we would see Jesus. We would see him, you see. And it says that that we're his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Which means his power and his glory is to go everywhere. And his power and his glory is to go everywhere as we go everywhere. We're the fullness of Christ. And, and we're to take the fullness of Christ everywhere we go so that his glory and his, and his power and his love and his compassion and his kindness and his forgiveness is, is seen, is seen everywhere, you see. Now we feel really weak in doing that. And so how does it, how does that happen? Well, it happens in all these great means that we have, like through his word. Through prayer, through sacraments, through our fellowship and our mission that Christ fills all in all. With the salt and light, salt of the earth, light of the world, you see. That's who we are as the people of God. Wherever you are, that's who you are. Salt and light. Wherever we are, that's who we are. We're really, you see, to reveal, to manifest the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the power of God, everywhere we are. Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, think about this. Wherever you are, some of you will be at work, some of you will be... um, the grocery store, some of you will be, wherever you'll be. Think about this. And smile. Just smile. You may be in a very difficult spot. Just smile. God is, Christ is filling us up. And he's ruling and reigning even now. <laughs> Through us. But can we be really certain of this? You know, there's that fabulous passage in, in Romans in chapter 8. You know, if Christ be for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ? Heights, depths, powers, principalities, things to come. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Can we be sure of that? We can be sure of this because the very one who rules and reigns is our brother and our Savior and the Lord. Do you remember Joseph? You remember Joseph was young uh, when we first meet him in the in the narrative there, and he's young and and he's not too bright. He he has older brothers, and he tells on them and the, when they weren't really doing their job. And that does, that's not a smart thing for the youngest brother to do. And then he has uh, dreams about how his brothers and even his parents will bow down to him someday. That's not a smart thing to tell your brothers. So they got upset and probably overreacted. And so they put him in a pit and ultimately sold him into slavery. And as you remember, then he ends up ultimately in Egypt, uh, where he's falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar and then ends up in prison. Uh, but because he's um, uh, favored by God, he becomes sort of the head, if you will, of all the prisoners in the prison. And uh, he's well known enough that when the two uh, prisoners, a cupbearer to the king and the baker of the king, have dreams, they uh, somehow make that known. And Joseph is able to, to interpret those dreams. And when he interprets those dreams, uh, they come true, sadly, for the baker. <laughs> He says, you're going to die. And, but the cupbearer, he says, you're going to be reinstated. And, and, but he says to the cupbearer, you remember, he says, he says, no, when you get back in the good graces of the, the king, you let him know I did this. Well, two years went past. And finally, the Pharaoh, the king had a dream. And the cupbearer finally remembered, oh, I know somebody who can help you. And so they bring in Joseph and Joseph interprets the dream. And you, you know that dream. It's about the seven good years and then the year of famine and all that. So uh, Joseph is put in charge of all of that and has a plan. Then famine hits. And so Jacob, Joseph's dad, who's still back in Israel, uh, says to his sons, go to Egypt, they have food. You can't take the youngest, Benjamin, because I already lost Joseph. I don't want to lose two. And so you go and, and get us some food. And so as they're going, we're reading this story saying, will they get any food? And you can't, I don't know. I mean, they betrayed their brother, for all intents and purposes, had him killed, separated from the family. But now his brother's in charge of everything. And you go, are they going to get any food? How's this going to work out? And so they're going along. You're watching the story. They show up. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. There's a little bit of tension. You kind of feel it in the midst of the story. And and then finally, he he sends them back filled with food and their money. But he says, I want you to bring my little brother. That'll be the test. I'm going to keep Simeon back here just in case. A little collateral. Which wasn't very, probably in some ways wise, because he goes, well, they already got rid of one. Why would they not get rid of another? But, but anyway. Uh, and so, so then they come back. And that big question is, are they going to get food? And you think, Joseph's forgiven them. They'll get food. Because he's their brother. Who has become their savior. Who is the Lord over all the food in Egypt. So they'll get as much of whatever Joseph has authority over. So what about us? 
we'll get as much as Jesus has authority over. And what does Jesus have authority over? Everything. He'll deal with our enemies. He'll make certain we receive the blessings. And what are we to do? Trust him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would enable us to trust you. You say your word is a lamp to us and a light to us and that it's profitable for our godliness. And so we pray that this power of your word would so permeate, penetrate our hearts that we would be transformed by it and we would live in the world in which we live trusting you. So please, I pray to take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we'd know we're in the very presence of the one who is our brother, who is our savior, who is the Lord. And that through this very common meal, it seems, with common elements, that we would be miraculously, powerfully strengthened in our faith. And this I pray in Jesus' name.